And uh, we, we have a very strong show for you today. I'm, I'm kind of excited about it. Um, <clears throat> we have some art folks on, but they're kind of talking about um, substantive issues that we deal with and how they are trying to, through their creativity, um, impact a situation that uh, we all have to address, and that is, of course, blight in our city. Um, And we're going to be talking about some of the new incubators in town that are coming on stream to help artists and creatives get off the ground with their businesses, what they're looking to do. And and uh, it's so much now we hear about entrepreneurism. And why do we hear about it? We hear about it because jobs have disappeared. They've gone offshore. So quite frankly, guys, we have no choice but to make things happen one way or another. And entrepreneurism is one of those ways. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, I hope that we'll have in a minute... Um, and I think I see him now. Um, one of my two favorite political um, uh, analysts in town, Clancy Dubose. The other favorite is Jacques Morial. I'm, I'm sure you're not surprised to hear that, Clancy. And of course, the, not at all. He's <laughs> and, my favorite too. Well, the two of you, uh, of course, I appreciate so much because um, you don't pussyfoot. You are you 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 speak out, and um, as we all know, I'm, that's a, my inclination as well. So. I enjoy it when uh, other folks are that way, too. And, and Clancy and I are going to talk a little bit about the election. I can't resist because, quite frankly, I'm obsessed. I'm totally obsessed. I've been watching this thing from day one. And at first, quite frankly, for me, it was theater. I just It was just jaw-dropping theater, listening to this guy, Trump, constantly spouting stuff that you just could not believe you were hearing. And, and, and then it got... Um, more serious and frustrating as uh, my husband predicted from the beginning that he had a chance of really rising. And I, I was one of the naysayers. I thought he'd burn out. And then he just kept saying unbelievable stuff that, that it just didn't matter. And, and even when he said he could shoot a gun down Fifth Avenue and people would still support him, and they did, I was just flabbergasted. And I shouldn't be because we all know that there are two incredible factors out there, three at least. But one of them is the total collapse of the job world as we knew it in the 20th century. That It's gone. It's gone offshore. And um, these corporate guys who are still making a killing on the sales of products to all of us that are made everywhere else but here are to blame in part and also all kinds of trade issues and complicated financial issues. But those aside, the, the sum total of it is that there's a lot of people out of work, not just youth, not just black youth. But middle-class white people, they're all out there with, without potential career development. And um, there's a lot of anger, as everybody says. Needless to say, second factor, incredible racism, still alive and well in the, in the 21st century. Uh, we can't escape it. It's still there. We, we just have to keep on addressing it and dealing with it. And, and, and hopefully we're going to come up with um, a, a new uh, strategy and approach to it that will um, have some impact in the 21st century. And then the, the third factor is what I would call the total um, irresponsibility of the media that has used Trump for ratings and has not probed his lies and, and, and don't cover the stories um, that completely undermine his appeal, such as the fact that his products are also made in Mexico and China, 
such as the fact that he hires immigrants when he could hire Americans in his resorts in Florida, and, um, and, and then his very complicated and superficial politics. So, okay, there's my little rant. And I, I don't want to, Clancy, really uh, redo the, oh, my God, you know, can he win or can he win? Um, the fact of the matter is, yeah, he can win. We, there's no doubt about it. Um, so let's get past that. And, and how do how does the truth come out? That's kind of what I want to go to. But you tell me what you think the focus is. Well, Gene, I agree with you first. When I read something online, I wish I could remember where, where I read it. I don't think it was if it was in Politico or another online publication that said, you know, everybody likes to blame the media, but this time the, the media really are to blame. Uh, it was all a clickbait. And, you know, Trump was theater, and it was good for ratings. And, look, if, if you think the, the media isn't the message, <laughs> look at Trump. Uh, and there are two other closely actors what, and what I call the political factors, you identified it, the, 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 the economy, the whole economic issue. I mean, look, the stock market is just, just a one little barometer. There, like you said, there are a lot of jobs that have gone offshore. It's racism and it's the media. I would put the media out there itself because that, that, that transcends a lot. And you can take uh, the racism and the economy, and it, what does that translate into? Two things, fear and anger. And when, I'm, when I tell people about what motivates people in politics and what, what, does, you know, what is Trump playing on, what emotions is he playing on, he's playing on fear and anger. And of all the things that motivate people in politics, love, the issue, you know, somebody being a nice guy, those ranks further down. Number one and number two. And I'm not sure which one's one and what would. You want to get people voting, tap into fear and anger if they're feeling it. And they are feeling it. And you're going to be on to something. You know, and Clancy. The problem uh, is, let me just finish this up. Yeah. The problem is, in our personal lives, think of your relationship with your husband, mine with my wife, with people we work with. There's a little bit of wisdom. You should never make an important decision when you're angry, you know, because it's irrational. But And what's more important than picking somebody for president? And Trump is not that different politically, and I don't mean in terms of his positions, but in terms of how, how the mechanics and, and the, and the um, I'll just say the mechanics of how he gets where, he, where he's gone, than David Duke. People see Trump as kind of a protest vote, the same way that in the early 90s in Louisiana, people saw Duke as a protest vote. They were angry. They didn't lie. They were just angry. And you and I, Gene, and people who probably people who are listening to this radio, we understand that a vote is very important. We understand that elections matter. But a lot of people, a whole lot of people out there, maybe for a majority of Americans, hopefully not, but for a lot, a significant minority, if not a majority of Americans, they think their vote doesn't matter. We know elections matter. So to them, a vote for Trump is just, yeah, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of the gridlock. I'm sick of the economy. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of that. I'm just going to vote for Trump and Trump and send a message. Well, the problem with sending a message is, in this case, it's the messenger. It's not the message. It's the messenger. And 
that's what makes Trump very dangerous, because people people vote year after year after year, and to them, most a lot of people, if not most people, they say nothing changes. I vote for Democrat, same old stuff. I vote for Republican, same old stuff. This guy's been there. Except so he doesn't say what he's going to do. Right. And, just, and, and, he, like, and the last thing I'm going to say is this whole national scene reminds me of Berlin, 1932. You get a demagogue who says, I am the answer, and they are the problem. I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I, I'm not one of those people who likes to call out the Hitler um, analogy, but it's irresistible in this situation because for those of you who didn't study uh, the history of of Europe between the world wars, um, Germany was flat on its back after World War One. The economy was horrible. Inflation was horrible. People were. It was like the Depression in America. It was very, very bad scene. And so everybody was looking for someone to blame for it, to to uh, to vent their anger. And sure enough, there here comes along this um, Australian, not Australian, Austrian, Austrian, Austrian yeah. painter, house painter, who just happened... He's a paper hanger. Paper hanger. I thought he was an actual house yeah. painter. He was a painter He was a pa- painter and a wallpaper hanger, yeah. Okay. Who who just knew knew how to spout the words that got people going just the way um, Trump is. Although Trump, I have to say, to me, even sounds worse because um, he just he's spreading his hate in every direction imaginable. But here's my here's my thing. I feel that in addition to the media, you know who else is culpable? The Democrats, who have not really put forward any kind of truly deep program to address the economic transition we're in. We're in a profound transition Every bit as, tr- as profound as the Industrial Revolution was, this is now the Technological Revolution. Jobs are gone. New jobs are coming up. It's true. You know, everybody predicted, oh, as many jobs will come up as go away. But what happens in the meantime for people who aren't trained for their jobs, whether it's older people or younger people, what happens to them and what happens to them is this anger we're talking about. So, you right. know, you I, how, at, can, how, can we, how can we be conscious? We look, we, we look back at the Industrial Revolution and say, oh, wow, that was a cool thing. Everybody got modernized. Well, they didn't get modernized all at once. There were a lot of farmers who were out of work, and it led to something called the Agrarian Rebellion. And it didn't go anywhere, but it, but it consumed America and Europe for a period of 10 to 20 years. You know, it was the pushback because they were out of jobs. But go ahead. Yeah, your audio, hey, 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 Clancy, your audio is not great right now. I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to talk for just a couple seconds and then um, I want you to switch to a landline. Can you do that? You got a landline handy? Yes. Um, I will call Lee right back. Okay, 260-9265. Great. Um, While we're waiting for him, um, in, in my studio, I have some very interesting people who are addressing these issues. And when I uh, finish going through some political analysis with Clancy, we're going to be talking with them. Um, and, and, and we're going to address some, some different issues. I mean, one, uh, we're going to uh, deal with, you know, the, this need to help people shift to this new economy. And that's what Amy Smallwood with the Louisiana Cultural Economy Foundation, who's with us, is going to talk about. But the other thing is our blight. And I have an artist, organizer, young woman who has taken this on, and uh, I think you're going to find what she has to say really exciting. So um, I think have we got Clancy back. Okay. 
Clancy? Yeah, sorry about that. That's my cell phone and, and uh, yeah, no, no big deal. We go through phone stuff all the time here. But um, so you, you understand what I'm saying? Yes, the agrarian rebellion, and right now we're having the Trump rebellion, and and by the way, the Bernie Sanders rebellion too. So you know the Bernie Sanders situation. You know, honestly, I've got to put my vote where it counts. But man, I could be so tempted to vote for Bernie Sanders because of his policies and what he stands for. And I, I just can't agree more with the fact that inequality is just in, is rampant. And, and, you know, I've said this before on this show, but, you know, 10 years ago, I would see little articles on page 16 of the New York Times about inequality and say, why in the hell is this not a front page big damn issue? I think I'm not supposed to say those words on the air. I'm not sure. But w- w- why is it, are these not really in the forefront? And and then it took it took um, Occupy Wall Street, it took Black Lives Matter, and it took Bernie Sanders to actually put them out there. And if nothing else is accomplished in this whole damn election, but that Bernie Sanders put that word out there over and over and over again. And they can say he's a one-issue candidate, fine with me, because that issue is so critical. But, but well, Liz, Clancy, how are we going to get out of this? Are you right, but Bernie Sanders is on to something. Think about this. In the month of February, last month, Bernie Sanders raised $42 million. That's more than all of the other candidates, Republican and Democrat, combined. You think he's not onto something? And he raised it in small doses from individuals, not from corporations and not from super PACs. He is onto something. He's not getting all the votes, but he has tapped into something. Now, there's, and that's not fear and anger, that's an issue. Right, that's and, an issue. And, and I Real think. Issue. And, and, that, and what he has done also, and when you talk about the money he's raised, through his and he's got some I forget what the name of his program is but Amy you and I all of us need to use what he uses to raise money what what's the Act name of the blue. program Act Blue Act Blue. Blue. This that's is, the donation service. He that's uses. okay. So, and, and and this is a technique of getting. It's kind of like Kickstarter in a way, but it's not project specific. It is, you know, for his campaign. But the idea of being able to raise money from individuals in small doses is such an antidote to the the uh, the perceived ownership of the political world by a handful of very wealthy people who want to control everything that's going on. So um, all power to that um, exposure, too, and and I hope more of us use that technique and figure out how we're going to raise some money for the things that count for us. But, But, Clancy, how are we going to get out of this? Because let's just say, you know, hopefully... The the media starts doing its job and contrasts the reality of what he has done, Trump, and what well, he will. says. They will, but it won't it won't come until this is this is I've seen this happen over and over and over in the media. They build a guy up and then they tear him down, and they can't wait to tear down Trump. But first, they're going to keep riding the wave of his clickbait because. But there's always the danger that it won't work this time. You know, every template works until it doesn't, <laughs> and that's the danger. Uh, what's what's your prognostication? What what's what's well, your I feeling think about it? The nomination. I think Hillary gets the nomination, and as things stand today, that's a big caveat. Today, Clinton would win, but who knows what can happen? Fear and anger. You know, 
Hillary's liable to slip. Every, everybody makes mistakes. Trump slips up all the time and nobody cares. So, <laughs> slip Hillary, up is a funny word. I think it's all lose, very deliberate. It would be Hillary's election to lose, but don't underestimate her ability to lose it or anybody else's. Exactly. All right, but going beyond that, so what I wanted to do was go beyond that. So how do we finally actually get our um, democratic forces, whether it's through what Bernie has done or it is through continuing to keep the pressure on um, uh, uh, Hillary and uh, and the Republicans, how 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 are we going to actually move this needle to where we should be focused on true economic um, transition and change that brings our people along with it? I mean, how, how do we well, get I to? I think there are two there are two basic chances to derail Trump. When the Republican, unless Trump locks it all up this weekend uh, or next weekend on the fifteenth, which I don't think he will, but he could. I don't think he's going to get to 1,235. I think that's the number. Somewhere in the 1,200-something delegates. But when it gets down to him and one other candidate, and he starts doing his name-calling, and at that point it's like, hey, wait a minute. We understand you don't like the guy, but what are your policies? What is your plan specifically? What are you going to do about this? Tell us what you're going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to fix it. No, fix it how? You know, what exactly, what is your bill? Hey, hey, hey Clancy, excuse me. Because nobody's done that yet. Ex I was going to say, excuse me, what is so hard about asking those questions now? Well, Why do we have they, to get through building the guy up now. to take him down? Gene, Gene, they ask those questions now, but they don't, number one, you've got a different dynamic on the platform, on the dais. You've got Trump versus three, four, eight, ten other people. When it gets down to him and one other, it's not going to turn into the theater because it's going to be him and one other, and it's going to be it's going to be issue specific. And if he tries to do his usual thing, say, wait a minute, wait, 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 time out. A good moderator will just cut him off and say, stop. You know, we're going to go to a commercial break if you do that. Where is that moderator? I haven't heard that moderator yet. They've all been, uh, you know, he 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 attacks people for nothing. And, and uh, yet to see a, a moderator really take him on. I, I haven't seen it. Well, maybe if they don't, then, then you're looking at possibly President Trump. God, Lord. You know, well, not you know, only I, is I, that I, horrible I, for us, but... Yesterday, there was a, uh, an article, I think it was on Politico, but it, it could be somewhere else, but somebody said, if Trump gets elected, you will have gridlock once again. This was by a Republican. You'll get gridlock because his own party doesn't support his platform. When he, when he finally has to do something and propose something, his own party leaders in the Republican Party in the Senate and the House, they're not for his stuff. They think, well, deep down when he starts to talk about his policies, he's going to be nowhere near as conservative as the rest of the Republican Party. He'll have his outlier issues like build the wall between us and Mexico and, and don't let any Muslims in. But other than that, his actual economic policies are not in sync with the Republicans. He's a he's a economic protectionist. He wants to put tariffs on and, and bring those jobs back. That's not a Republican issue. The Republicans are all about free trade. Wait, you really buy no, that? Here's a guy who's making his products in China and Mexico. You think he really he really means to do that? We'll see. At some point, you got to deliver, and when he has to deliver. If he's out of step, it's going to lead to more gridlock. And he can go up and bombast and do all this other stuff. 
<laughs> I mean, unless he becomes sort of Reagan on crack, you know, the great communicator who taps, goes right to the, to the voters, you know, Reagan was calm and reassuring, whether you liked him or not. He didn't get on there and rant and rave and foam at the mouth like Trump does. Reagan was the great communicator. Trump could be that way because people listen to him. But he, he's foaming at the mouth most of the time. But that would be Maybe his he only needs rabies shots. to go right to the people and say, listen, you need to call you in. And he could do that. That's what makes him dangerous. Yeah. Um, but, you know, hopefully if he does that, there'll be enough Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, at least. You can't, frankly, you can't trust the House because they got to run every two years. They're scared of their shadows. But the Senate <laughs> would be the, 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 the adult in the room. Pretty much the way it is in Louisiana, by the way. Um, but but I, I, I don't know. I mean, you've you got Paul Ryan out there talking, Mitch McConnell. I just don't see that they're having any impact. Clancy, uh, let, me, let me ask you, uh, I've got to move on to my other guests, and I just want to have your closing thoughts that I have not elicited yet that is a revelation on what you think, first of all, maybe not so much um, just predictive what's going to happen, but what can we, the voters, do? You said some people feel their votes don't count. Our votes do count. We know that. But here in Louisiana, you know, it's, it's a tough situation. Our, our votes definitely are in the minority uh, in this situation. What can we do who are uh, totally not behind his demagoguery um, and his, his hatred and his, his um, racism? What, what can we do? What can we be doing right now to address the, the situation? The number one thing that, that in politics and in life, I go back to what Woody, uh, Woody Allen said, 90% of life is showing up. In politics, it's 100%. If you don't show up and vote, you don't matter. Your vote, do, your vote does matter, but you, only if you show up. And All then, right. And then make noise in between elections. Make noise. This is what I tell people all the time on this show, and so, Clancy, um, thank you for underscoring that, and I love talking with you, and um, let's, let's visit soon. Soon. Same here. Thank you, Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. All right. So um, we just rang a few bells, um, and I have, as I said in, in, in my studio, um, a woman, Amani Brown, who works with Antenna Gallery, so she's right there in the heart of the art scene, of the St. Claude art scene, um, but she's one of the founders of a program called Lights Out. And this is a very interesting um, phenomena. I'm going to call it a phenomena that has developed here in New Orleans. And um, I want Amani to tell us about it. And, and again, I, I want to know, I always want to tell my audience how they can be engaged and involved. And I know that your program is about bringing people into it. So tell me about it. Thanks, Jean. Um, feels really good to talk. I've been biting my tongue during the whole political conversation. Really wanted to jump into that. Um, jump in. I think, well, you know, I think that uh, the last comment that, you know, Mr. Clancy made was super important. In between elections, make noise. You know, I think one of the biggest problems is that we feel that uh, our political engagement begins and ends with an election. And even if we have a candidate who uh, we have voted for and we stand behind in office, we can't stop then. You know, we have to, as Obama's health care plan was, you know, being tossed around in Congress and being formulated, we needed to 
be out on the streets pushing him and pushing everyone else to go even further to make sure that uh, the policies that actually come out um, are beholden to the promises that were made during the uh, electoral campaign. Uh, and I think that that's uh, accountability. It's accountability. accountability. Uh, and I think that that's you know something that is is that that ongoing uh, engagement is something that it, it gets tiring. You know, you know it's uh, especially as you start to see the country slipping and you and you hear all sorts of um, you know crazy groundswell of opinions from from the reactionary right, which is becoming more of the right, and, you know, you recognize that the mainstream media isn't covering all of the Democratic candidates fairly, you know, and, and you feel like your voice doesn't matter, your your vote doesn't count, you don't have jobs, the housing is, is getting out of control, you can't afford rent, you know, it, it becomes draining. And thankfully, here in New Orleans, we actually have a prescription for that uh, exact sort of spiritual uh, emotional drain that that politics and that the you know the political and capitalist system has on us and it's you know our culture uh, we have a myriad of different types of mutual aid societies like the social aid and pleasure club that recognize that there is no divide there should be no divide there is a false divide between civics and culture culture is merely a tool that is used to bring people together to create communication between two people, many people, for people to evolve together, to solve problems, to uh, put plans in place and, and, and uh, ensure that our, our electoral candidates are not the only ones who, who can make policy. Policy comes from the people, right? Uh, so that's what Lights Out is really sort of anchored in, this idea that we all need to be engaged and the engagement process shouldn't be boring. It shouldn't be bureaucratic. It shouldn't be painful. It should be spirit-raising. It should be life-affirming. And that's why, you know, the Social Aid and Pleasure Clubs put on these second lines where it's like even when, you know, you're saying, well, they were formed because black communities couldn't get insurance. And they said, all right, well, you know, okay, if, if the system won't provide these basic services for us, we'll just do it ourselves. And you know what? We're going to put on jazz funerals for our people, and we're going to make sure that we have health care, that we can all buy in together for health care. And we're going to march from black-owned business to black-owned business to support our local economy. Uh, and we're going to have a damn good time doing it, right? You know, we're going and, – and it's amazing that you see that that tradition has kind of evolved and emerged in, in different ways, manifested in different ways over the years. So whenever we have a protest – here in New Orleans, you know, you don't have some boring hey, hey, ho, ho chants, people marching <laughs> off beat, you know, can't even talk at the same time that you see all over the country. And I've protested in a lot of places in the country and around the world. And, you know, that it gets really um, – when, you, when, when you're just moving with anger, you can't build the world that you want to see. You have to move – and you have to you have to protest with the same energy that you want to bring into the world with the same love and passion and and joyfulness. Uh, and you can have anger, right? But you can also, you know, use the the mode of protest as a form of of, of working through your own anger, your own suffering, your own trauma, right? It, it it's all a healing process. So to like actually, I guess go and say what blights out actually is at, with all of that. Um, we're a coalition of of Citizens first, but um, 
who are artists, cultural organizers, culture bearers, craftspeople, architects, urban planners. We've got a whole gambit, policy analysts, um, real estate agents, and people who have come together, recognize that the housing crisis is out of control. We, the blight in the city is out of control. There should be a solution that can deal with both of those issues at the same time, uh, and that that solution needs to come from the citizens of New Orleans, and it needs to come first and foremost from natives of New Orleans to ensure that the original residents of a neighborhood who are getting pushed out, who are still displaced, actually have agency and say in what happens to their neighborhood, but that we can also you know, form sp safe spaces where newcomers and natives can commiserate and, and find common ground and work through some of these really heavy issues around um, around gentrification and, and displacement that we see. So I, <clears throat> I, I'm so glad you went right to that point because this is something that has been very frustrating for me over the years since the storm in particular, but even before that, as a resident of Treme from, yeah, is, a, is my audio okay, Lee? Is, can people hear me? Because uh, I, I lost it. Um, Lee? Oops. Okay, he can't read. Can you say something to Hello. Yeah. Uh, we're just, Lee? We're, we're just trying to get the audio back on for Jean. Go knock on the window. <laughs> Apparently we're not, uh, nobody can hear me right now. I'm not sure why. Okay, he's talking. Okay, oh, am I all right now? Can you hear me? I, I can hear you about sound. Okay. <laughs> All right, sorry guys, uh, for a moment there, I think uh, maybe I had a plug loose. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, oh, that sounds better. Okay, so I've been handling the mic a little bit too much. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Um, anyway, so, um, okay. Um, the, the gentrification issue is something that uh, is happening, of course, Everywhere it has happened historically. This is this is not the first uh, um, go round with this here in New Orleans. It, it it happened in Soho in London a hundred years ago. It happened in in France when the artists every time in particular for some reason artists come into a neighborhood, the creatives and they change the whole feel and culture and thinking in a community. All of a sudden, everybody wants to be there. And then when everybody wants to be there, they start upping the price of real estate. At the very least, it, it causes an increase in taxes. That, that factor alone, I'm hearing, is pushing people out. So a woman who actually is a real estate broker who has been part of the whole move into the bywater will say that she lost a neighbor who simply couldn't pay the higher taxes. Right. And I'm hearing that more and more. Mm -hmm. So looking for what is the way we deal with this this gentrification? What is the way we do make sure that people, the traditional residents of a neighborhood, don't get pushed out? What is the way that, who's come up with some kind of a strategy that um, will protect them and that are, it will be accepted and endorsed and, and it can happen. Well, I'm so glad you brought up this point. There, there are a lot of issues I want to touch on there um, because as Blight's Out formed, one of our biggest concerns was this, you know, sort of tradition of, you know, artists coming into a neighborhood being the catalyst for gentrification. And we immediately were like, well, you know, that doesn't, 
that doesn't make any sense. That shouldn't be the only way. That should not be the case. Uh, and how do we push back against it? And when you start to tease out, you know, that statement, artists are catalysts for gentrification, one thing that becomes clear is that we're forgetting that the people who already lived in that neighborhood are artists, right? So we look at Treme, for example, where gentrification is, is running rampant. And that is, you know, the, the cultural, just one of the culture, God, we have like, a, we are, New Orleans is a multi-heart beast, but it's one of the cultural hearts of, of our city where all sorts of cultural traditions have been born. There are, are many artists who are living there. So when we talk about artists uh, being the cows of gentrification, we're talking about non-Native artists, usually white artists, who through the very fact of being white and being from outside, bring uh, the ability to, to increase the value of property with them into a neighborhood because their bodies, where they go, increase prices, um, increase the idea of value, increase the idea of, oh, well, now that these folk are here, now we can start to bring services. Now there is someone who will buy the $5 coffee, this yeah, and the other. Yeah, and, and, and also it, it, it goes to um, their resources and their ability to, let's say, Im, uh, restore a house. So when you go through uh, Bywater now, where there used to be houses that hadn't had a paint job in 20 years, you know, and they've got all these flashy Caribbean colors now, um, you, you can see it. Um, actually, we've been doing some study on this because we just put in a, a, a proposal to the feds for funding to try to develop a dialogue between, and this is something I want to ask you about also, um, the traditional community and the newer culture mm-hmm. of, the, of the newbies who've moved in. 45% of the people living in Bywater are from outside. Wow. 45%. Yeah. I was, I knew it was high. I knew thousands of kids have moved here. I had no idea it was that high. So when you get to that tipping point of almost half of the population, um, you know, you, you've had radical change. Yeah. And, and, and it's pushing out. Of course, it's pushing into Holy Cross. It's going to, it's going into Araby. It's going into the seventh, eighth and ninth ward. So, you know, I, I don't see any real significant program, tell me I'm wrong, what's out there that is protecting the traditional, I mean, at the in very Orleans, least, can't they maintain, exist. can't they put a moratorium on property on, taxes? On yes. property taxes. So, yes, yeah, and, you know, it, it, there right. are Increases. there are many modes of, of protecting both homeowners and renters all over the country. You know, New York is famous for, for having rent control, right? Tenants in New Orleans used to be zero, used to be that's rights. that's not well they re they uh, they re re-upped it you know it came up for review uh, rent control came up for review last year and they they um, did keep they it going. resigned it yeah and you know but there's it, something that still called, applies to a lot less properties than it used right. to right I grew up in a rent control department at 125 dollars a month Whoa. yeah and and my first apartment when I got out of college was in the village was $125 a month. Those were the days. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I lived in New York for, for seven years and uh, was involved in the arts community there in Soho. And Soho is a, a neighborhood that has gone through incredible gentrification because um, initially, so it's funny because... Commercialization at this point. Yes, and um, I, I worked for an organization that was the estate of an artist, who uh, Donald Judd, who... Uh, really tr- actually was one of those artists who who transformed that neighborhood. It was, an, uh, you know, Soho, Borders, Chinatown, and Little Italy. Robert Moses, the architect of America's highway system, which is used as a tool for, 
you know, the disinvestment in low-income communities of color across the country, which is what then drives property values down, causes massive unemployment, causes the, you know, the kind of collapse of, of the city center, as we see, we saw here in New Orleans with the construction of the Claiborne overpass. So what we have going on here is actually just, you know, a, a drop in the bucket of this much larger sort of um, long con. That yeah, we tend to think that what happens here is only happening here with this process. I mean, I, I have a brochure on Detroit because I've invited somebody from Detroit to come and talk at our um, our symposium, our summit that is occurring on March 14th as part of the New Orleans, and, and, it, and it's a big brochure that says Creative Detroit. Detroit is like just bombed out, and now they're trying to uh, bring that creative spirit in, and, and where are the people who live there? Right. But just to complete my thought on Soho, so, so the artist uh, whose estate I worked for uh, was a major organizer um, in that neighborhood. It, the, the part where he lived was sort of, you know, dying industrial neighborhood. Um, and as Robert Moses actually wanted to build an expressway through this part of lower Manhattan, uh, Donald Judd and other artists and the Chinese community and the Italian community all came together and protested and made sure that they wouldn't build the highway through this low-income neighborhood of color. And they also organized to have a massive rent control strategy in that neighborhood. And even today when you're in Soho, you've got these, you know, artists in their 70s who are living in crazy full floor lofts and, and paying $200 a month. So like the only people in New York who are doing well housing wise right now are the artists who organized back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and when we look at the construction of the Claiborne overpass here, we know that there was an initial proposal for that highway to go through the French Quarter, and the residents organized and got pushed it pushed out, out to into the black, into the black community, right? Yeah. Where it's like, all right, well, you know, we'll just put it right <coughs> there. Not to say that people weren't organizing because there is a group called the Claiborne Avenue Design Team um, that you know made uh, run by Cliff James and uh, that made numerous proposals. Uh, after the Claiborne overpass was already up, for how you could actually revitalize that space and actually and turn it into uh, a, a, um, a pedestrian-friendly, um, business-friendly conduit. You could bring lighting and you could bring pavilions underneath the overpass. The murals that we see on the columns are actually the only piece of this much more comprehensive proposal yeah. that actually happened. We actually, I had a class that I taught at, uh, at, at Tulane, and uh, we, we made uh, the Claiborne Avenue one of our projects, and one of the uh, proposals was to do movie theaters and bowling alleys and uh, what do you call bocce courts under the, I mean, there were a lot of things that could happen under there. And, in fact, actually what's interesting is that it has happened in Baton Rouge, of all places, mm. and we still haven't figured it out. And, 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 by the way, there's Department of Transportation money for mitigation of the impact of transportation projects that apparently nobody here Access. So That's it was another one of those things of the failure of accountability. And the question is, is that, I, I think that it may be too late, Imani, for that DOT money, but it's certainly worth looking into yeah. because um, that is a major source of, of, um, of mitigation. Um, let me ask you what's next for you. Um, I, I'm going to add AMA into the conversation in just a couple minutes. Um, tell me uh, what some of your upcoming projects and strategies are. Sure. So um, we're at this really exciting point where we – so first of all, there there is a plan 
uh, called Housing NOLA, which uh, examines the housing crisis, uh, says that we need at least 33,000 new affordable housing units to be built over the course of the next 10 years. Now, that's for people who are here, or that's to help bring people back that have never been able to come back? That's for people who are here already to make sure that, you know, we we have housing. I mean, people – so New Orleans – and there's – a study that just came out a couple days ago that I haven't gotten my hands on yet um, saying that New Orleans is either number one or number two uh, with the worst rent-to-income ratio in the country. Um, But, you know, we know that 72% of New Orleans residents are cost-burdened, meaning that they pay at least one-third of their uh, income on housing. And... uh, an addition, and on top of that, something like 50% of people are paying 50% or more uh, on housing, which is out of control, uh, especially as our salaries are so That would include low. me. <laughs> right. You too. You too, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, this, so this plan is about to drop uh, on the scene. You can see it online at housingnola.org. It was put together by uh, a coalition of... Uh, you know, nonprofit housing uh, developers, housing advocates, community land trust organizers, real estate agents, this and the other. Uh, and, you know, we, we're really grateful. Blights Out is very grateful for this plan being out because it really um, outlines uh, both the current state of housing and, and some avenues for, uh, for solutions. One thing that... Uh, you know, we, we wish was in the housing NOLA plan was a greater analysis of something called the community land trust model, which is uh, a model that Blights Out supports. And um, uh, it's a model of land ownership. Uh, it's, a, it's actually a nonprofit organization uh, that purchases land, um, purchases property. And uh, the land uh, is held by the community land trust, and it is kept below market value. Uh, so land is what always appreciates increases in value. You know, a building actually depreciates uh, like a car when you drive it off the lot. Uh, so the land always stays below market value. It never fluctuates, and um, anyone can own or build a house, a single-family home, a multi-family home, um, a commercial business on top of that land, and they can live in it and they can operate it for... But the land is owned by... This is an idea I actually put out right after the storm. I called it using that co-op model. You know, in New York, you have a lot of uh, uh, people who uh, have a co-op ownership of a building. Um, People buy their apartments, but they are part of the co-op. And I said, why can't we do that for a whole block in New Orleans? So it sounds very similar to that. Exactly. Keith, what do you want to add to the conversation? Listen, uh, when they diverted that construction, that old thing from going to the French Quarter and and made it go to the Tremaine, right? Peter Fonda made a movie called Easy Rider. And part of that scene was shot on Claiborne and Canal by the cemetery. And in the background, this is between 68 and 69, all you can hear, Peter Fonda and uh, Jack Nicholson, they were, the scene was they're looking at the damn pigeon. But in the background, you can hear that <laughs> That was a power driver. Driving those stains in the ground for wow. the upcoming overpass. Wow. It started right there. I'm going to leave y'all. If y'all can find that movie, you're going oh, to yeah. see the whole scene on Canal and Claiborne by the cemetery. And guess what? They shot a scene 
when they got all drugged up, they was in the cemetery. And you still can hear that power driving. Wow. Thank you, Keith, for that little piece of history. We got to track that down. That would be something that would be great for you to use. You know, that reminds me, by the way, Imani, you're an artist, right? I am. A bit of an unconventional Because we've been talking, you know, social (laughs) movement here. So so explain to me how you balance those two. I'm kind of in the same place as you, except that I'm only a, I, I, I retreated from art making many years ago. I was I was chicken, quite frankly, and so I'm just a Sunday painter now. But I, I, I try to balance those social and arts things. Tell, tell me how you do that. Well, um, I also sort of wavered away from making physical objects a while ago when I was involved in Occupy Wall Street while I was living in New York um, and sort of started to do more perf- uh, actions and interventions and performance-oriented sort of rituals and different stuff like that, a whole nother long conversation. Um, but, you know, with Blights Out is very much inspired by mutual aid societies like the Social Aid and Pleasure Club, and we really believe that we need to use uh, artistic gestures, we need to use dance, we need to use spoken word to engage, first of all, with these blighted properties around the city, um, that there's a process of cleansing and healing uh, that needs to occur both for these houses and for ourselves um, as we prepare to reclaim these properties and transform them into community assets. Uh, secondly, we believe that culture is a great strategy to bring people together, to re-inspire them to engage uh, in the civic sphere. So we have this program or a project called the Citizens Development Platform uh, that you know is going to be a year-long, at least, initiative to bring people together to, to, first of all, articulate the injustices that we see uh, in our daily lives around housing and development, but then to move beyond naming of injustices and actually put together a collective vision for the future of New Orleans um, of, or just of our neighborhoods, not even you know the city at large, and to then have a list, a concrete list of, say, 10 demands uh, about how we're, we want that to be done. And uh, we want to work with both visual artists, graphic designers, as well as spoken word artists and uh, performers to take that platform and craft it in a way that is compelling and that will draw people in and become an entry point, an access point to this much larger, deeper, complex conversation. So over the course of this year, and you'll start seeing it uh, around September, October, um, the city is going to be saturated uh, with the vision and the will of the people of New Orleans. Love that. Love that. She's a poet. Mm-hmm. Now, listen, Amani, um, <clears throat> what you doing on March 14th? Not sure. Good. I want to include you <laughs> in a program that we're doing that I think you need to be a part of this discussion. We'll talk about it offline. Great. Um, and number two, uh, please stay in touch and, and keep us informed of what you're doing. I want to have you come back and talk some more. I've, t- I've taken more notes listening to you than I usually take from anybody. And um, uh, you have a lot to say and um, do. And uh, we want to help you do it and get our, our folks who are listening to our show. The f- people who are listening to this show are your Clients. They're people who want to work with you, I think. And so we want to make sure that we communicate. Well, more. everyone can, uh, you know, check out blightsout.org. It's like lights out, but with a B, blightsout.org. And uh, get in touch. There's a contact form. We, we love to bring new people into this process. It's all about collaboration. Terrific. We'll, thought we'll be talking some more. Thank you so much to Imani Brown, Blights Out. And um, now I want to bring in... Um, my other guests who um, have another strategy for dealing with the issue of trying to 
you know, address this issue of inequality and, and the fact that we are, we do not have our population, whether our older or younger population, prepared for this economic transition. And, and one way we hear a lot about, and, and honestly, guys, you're going to have to convince me because I'm very concerned that this is a buzzword out there, and I'm not sure how many people are really able to negotiate this new world that requires us all to be entrepreneurs. So I, I'm, I'm respectful and grateful for what um, the LEH, Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, and uh, Miranda Restovic, who's the executive director, is with us, and also Amy Smallwood, my buddy, um, who is the head of the Louisiana Cultural Economy Foundation. And these two have put together a brand-new incubator in the LEH building. What a great location, and I have some history on it I'm going to share with you uh, if I can get it in, and I, I want to make sure I give you enough time to talk about what, what's coming up. because We have got, a lot to say. You have a big yes. announcement coming up. Um, yeah, well, I mean, our, our announcement of this project, Culture Up, um, the, the incubator you just spoke of is tomorrow. And um, you're getting a little bit of a, a sneak preview of it um, today. We're but breaking the news, guys. We break the, the news, news on this show. But I, but yes, I also want to respond to that first thing that you said because there's something that's really important, um, I think, that we we have a, as a core belief. Art for art's sake is important. And, um, you know, just because this one organization focuses on entrepreneurialism and our art, the, the business sphere of art doesn't mean that we don't also support the other side of it. And part of the, our motivation for this is to allow people to earn a decent living in some way that supports their ability to create their art. So, um, you know, there's room in this universe for, for all of those things. So tell me how you're doing that. I, I understand that. And, and all, I didn't mean to imply that your program was – narrowly focused on entrepreneurialism. I just, you know, you hear so much in New Orleans about people, oh, we're, we're really on the roll, and we've got all these entrepreneurs coming to town. Quite frankly, I think most of the entrepreneurs that have come to town are creatives. Well, some of them not have just come to town. But, and that have that been here. here all along. Yeah. And, 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 and so many of them have incredible creative talent. Not all of them have the basic... Um, skill base in managing companies because, you know, we don't teach that in the schools, unfortunately. We really should. We don't. And artists also have um, a, an inherent need to focus on process and product. I mean, that that is what they do. And um, all that peripheral um, stuff about insurance and sales and marketing and all that um, is not necessarily their first concern. They're, they're they're um, creative geniuses, and um, you know they they think with a different part, different side of their brain. And so, what we want to do is provide um, an environment where collaboration can happen, um, that that learning can happen, and that uh, basically it's a nurturing environment where creatives who have um, early stage businesses or individual artists that sort of already function as businesses can come in and find the resources they need over a couple of years and and have some very inexpensive um, office space in downtown New Orleans in a great building. 
So I, I am so proud of both uh, your organization, LCEF, and LEH for doing this. Miranda, where, where did this? Where did this? I, I'm sure that uh, knowing Amy, she she brought this to the fore. No, but, but you guys wanted to do this, right? Oh uh, well, I think we were sort of um, on the same path, and we happened to encounter Amy uh, and have uh, very inspiring conversations. But I think for us. LEH has been around for 45 years. We have been uh, an agency that has been supporting the creative and cultural um, sort of lifeblood of Louisiana for 45 years. Um, and I think uh, this is an unusual step for a humanities council to take, to um, break the mold and go in a direction that also looks to building prosperity for the uh, for the sector that we have been documenting um, and marketing to the to the world really through our magazine through our grants programs I love your magazine thank you um, Louisiana cultural vistas um, but this is um, I think this 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 is our response to the new realities um, we have an asset we have many assets to share beyond the ones that we have traditionally shared with the cultural community. Um, and through this very exciting um, partnership with Amy and her group, we're able to open doors um, not only to our building but to our network of partners and then also uh, layer that with all of these um, other resources that Amy and our partners can bring to bear, access to funds, uh, access to marketing, mentors, uh, for our cultural uh, creatives to actually be able to tap in to the new economy because I think that's extremely important. Louisiana um, is out there promoting itself as a cultural mecca. The reason we're able to do that is because we have, um, we have organic and rich cultural heritage, but it's also continuous building on that. There are people who are being born who are in schools, and young people and old people who are still creating. And that's the draw to Louisiana. And I think this particular project is um, about um, allowing for those people uh, to tap into the prosperity uh, opportunities that are before us. And I think it's absolutely the charge of institutions like the LEH and um, our partners at the Cultural Economy Foundation to help um, in that effort. And this is our one small step towards that um, great big challenge that we have as a community. And it ties into the conversation around gentrification. It ties into the conversation around, um, you know, tourism and how much that is either bringing in or taking away. Um, and I think it, it, it also taps into this idea that um, we, the people who choose to be here, the people who choose to live in this space, can come together and wrap ourselves um, and shore up the natural-born resources that we have here. Let, let me um, uh, tune in on some of the specifics because I don't want to run out of time because I, I have a cop in the next room who um, will uh, put handcuffs on me if I, if I don't get off the oh air on time. So, Amy, um, give me the details. We're, we're talking about that beautiful... Um, I guess 19th century building that's on Lafayette Street, um, really just down the block from the Hyatt Hotel. I want, like, Close to, to Rouse's. 
a close a, a lot of great um, little restaurants Amenities. around there. It's a great neighborhood. It's a great walking neighborhood. And 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 you've got um, desks at only two hundred and fifty dollars a month. So that is a really um, helpful starting point for a lot of people who can't afford those big rents. You've got what you call the nook, and I, I, I looked at the picture of your nooks. What I love about the nooks is that you've got those windows so that people are not, like, walled in. They have some airspace and some light, and so and that's 450 a month. And so that gives you two workspaces, so it's, it's actually like a little bit of a bargain for two people, so it's really important. And um, it's not the, share, the kind of workspace where you have to take your stuff home with you. This is your office, and um, there are meeting rooms. There's a kitchen. There's, um, you know, fabulous copy machine. There's all sorts of amenities. It gives you an address. And, um, and again, like I said, in a great downtown neighborhood. And, access and to culture, up incubator for a member, access to Wi-Fi, fax and copy machines, mailboxes, physical mailing address, access to common spaces, conference rooms, the whole Megilla. And eligibility? You can be an individual, a nonprofit, a for-profit. I mean, it's it's pretty wide open. I think this is just. Uh, I'm really excited about this. Uh, I, I'm I'm grateful to you too for making this happen. Oh, well, we're excited. Tomorrow we do the formal unveiling with Councilman Latoya Cantrell. And, ten o'clock um, in the morning at the LEH. What's the exact address here? It's 9:38 Lafayette Street. Now here's the one thing: where are people going to park? Well, the the Ribbon cutting is not um, a, a big public event. It's it's a small event. I mean, in general. In general, um, there's street parking, and there's also a lot. There's two lots that are very near to us that are pretty affordable. Um, but you know, the, it is downtown, so if you can park somewhere and walk, that's even better. I walk. Bike racks, bike racks, bike racks. Yes, absolutely. We have a bike rack, and increasingly, <laughs> I think it's a much more walkable um, environment with the South Market District. There, there's. So I have my my one minute of history. Um, Bob Tan and my husband, you know, I always say that Tan and I are midwives in in our role in the city. And he once did a a plan for uh, a festival marketplace on the riverfront, i.e. the the Riverwalk, for a suburban mall by the um, dome uh, called, uh, you know, New Orleans Center, which has had a, a spotty history. And a pedestrian mall connecting them down Lafayette Street. And he always viewed Lafayette Street as a really important opportunity. And I always felt it was unfulfilled. But what you are doing now, I, I really feel, is going to bring that pedestrian activity, that the, the culture crowd, so to speak, uh, in the area. And by the way, please, p- folks out there, don't think that when we say culture, we're talking about just those newbie artists. We're talking about you. Culture bearers. Culture bearers. You know, those of us who've been here doing this all this time, people who have ideas that um, that they want to work on. You know, we're we're leaning a little bit away from total startups, but if you've got a background of having done the work, we want to talk to you. Now, you know, I had I didn't leave enough time for us to talk about our um, our fabulous summit, the Creative Industry Summit on Next March fourteenth. Uh, that's coming up in association with Idea Village and the New Orleans Entrepreneur Week. Um, we'll we'll hit that next week. It'll be in our newsletter that comes out on Wednesday nights. And um, that's another thing that LCF and and um, and uh, Cano and the DDD have gotten together on. So we'll get to that next time. But ladies, I'm so inspired by uh, everything I heard this morning. And um, and we got that clarion call from Clancy. Do it. Get involved. Stay involved. Uh, hold people to, the, to their feet to the fire. The accountability is what it's all about. 
And thank you for those of you who listen in and hear from you. Let's you know call in. I know you can interrupt us. We're, I know we talk a lot, but we're, we'll listen to. Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations. We're out. Thank you. Thank you.